Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Kate, I want to thank you for giving us the story of how God has been at work in this campus ministry. I appreciate uh, you inviting us to be a part of that. Dylan, I appreciate your, your uh, invitation as well and your words that uh, helped us experience together the Lord's Supper. You're absolutely right that all five senses are engaged. And it's the same way that God gives us that uh, immersive experience in baptism. I mean that literally and figuratively. Everything you experience at all. And someone's going to ask me later, wait a second. How is taste involved in baptism? Is that just if you swallow water? and you know? No, it's because you taste that last breath before you go under and then your first breath when you come up. And it reminds you that God and His Spirit is the breath. That's the breath of life. It's all there. But what about preaching? How does preaching fit into that? This is just the knowledge part, right? This is just the hearing part, right? The speaking part. Preaching is aimed at our imagination. And I think that's what, we, that's what we miss too often. That it's not just information, but it's imagination. Because information can tell you something. Information can give you a fact. And that fact may, or may be meaningful to you or it may be meaningless to you. But when the, when, when the Spirit of God, when the Word of God appeals to our imagination... Reality changes. My reality changes. Your reality changes. This is why Jesus, one of his preferred ways of speaking was in parables. Because parables fire the imagination. And in Luke chapter 16, he's given us two parables. And these parables are meant to engage our imagination because he is calling us to see the world differently. And to see it from heaven's perspective. Because we live in the end time. If you listen to a lot of religious information or maybe even some non-religious stuff, you're going to hear a lot about the end times and the end times are coming and the end times are near. Church, the end times are here. It's here. We live in the last age. The, The next thing that happens on God's schedule is the return of Christ. Everything else has been fulfilled. I can't tell you if that's going to be 10 minutes from now or if that's going to be 10,000 years from now. Good news is, that's not in my job description. And that's not in your job description either. What's in our job description is to be faithful and obedient and to be waiting and to live in this meanwhile with that kind of spirit-fueled imagination It helps us to see things as they really are. There's two parables in Luke 16. They both start with the phrase, there was a rich man. And at the end of the first one that we looked at last week, Jesus talks about a uh, dishonest scoundrel who's creative enough, who has the imagination to mismanage his master's funds so that he can secure the future. And Jesus says what we ought to be doing as the children of light is using the things of this world, the the money, the cash, the capital, the mammon of this world. And and you know, if if you didn't hear it, I'm I'm surprised that that's a new word for a lot of people. Mammon. They say it was the name of a false god. Uh, And it is a false god. But it's just an old, old term for 
money. But money personified as if it's a force, as if it's real, as if it, it has its way with us. It's almost like saying the almighty buck, mammon. The Pharisees, however, dearly loved their mammon, their money. They heard all that Jesus said and they wrote him off. They scoffed. Which meant they heard this about a dishonest manager and being creative and they thought and they probably just wrote it off gently and kindly to say, well, that's just ridiculous. That 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 parable doesn't apply. So Jesus said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts, and what the world honors is detestable in the sight of God. And this is where Jesus picks up the next parable. And it's aimed at the Pharisees, but everyone gets to listen in and hear what the meaning of it is. We know it is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to read this to you, and I'm going to read it from from the message main reason I'm going to read it from the message is um, because I think this parable is way too familiar to us. We need to hear it differently. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would let your word inspire our imagination and work its way into our hearts and help us to hear the teaching of your son Jesus and to respond to it, to let your word do its work and help us to be open enough, not just open ears and open minds, but open hearts and open spirits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was once a rich man, expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, had been dumped on his doorstep. And he, all he lived for was to get a meal from scraps off the rich man's table. His best friends were the dogs who came and licked his sores. Then he died, this poor man. And he was taken up by the angels to the lap of Abraham. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And then in hell and torment, he looked up, and he saw Abraham in the distance, and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's lap. He called out, Father Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you got the good things and Lazarus the bad things. It's not like that here. Here he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there's a huge chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you even if he wanted to. Nor can anyone cross over from you to us. The rich man said, then then let me ask you, Father Abraham... Send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so he can tell them the score and warn them so they won't end up here in this place of torment. And Abraham answered, They have Moses and the prophets to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. I know, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but they're not listening. If someone came back from the dead, they would change their ways. Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. And that's the parable. And I hope it inspires your imagination because you're going to have to have your imagination guide you through this because there's a lot 
more going on here than what it's like five minutes after you die. This parable is not just an imagination of what comes in the afterlife. It's, it's a parable. It's, it's a scene that causes us to ask, what are we doing here? And how do we see the world around us? Because in setting up that little um, scene where you have the rich man in his house and you have poor old Lazarus out here with his sores and the dogs are licking on them. Yes, that's disgusting. That's how sad he is. He has nothing to eat. He's outcast. He is, uh, you know, he, he's, he's diseased. He's contagious. He's, he's a problem. We have to be careful about people like Lazarus. Now, this may not seem like the world that you and I live in, and we can't, even, we can't even relate to this. It's like, oh my goodness, get Lazarus to the hospital. Let's get him to the shelter. Let's, let's, let's do something. Let's get him into one of our benevolence programs. And yes, the rich man, evil old rich man, living in his tower, living in his house, he's corporate America. He's all bad. We think we've got it figured out. But for the Pharisees who love their money, they, they saw it differently. And I don't want us to get a cartoon version of the Pharisees who are uh, sort of rich and, you know, that the Pharisees are a bunch of the, you know, there's, there's stereotypes of rich people like the Monopoly man, you know, with his little top hat and a monocle. I never understood why he had a monocle. He's got enough money to afford, you know, full glasses, but he only has half of one, so I don't really know what that's about. You got, you uh, Mr. and Mrs. Howell on Gilligan's Island, you know, that's, that's a stereotype of, of, of rich people. Uh, Donald Trump is a stereotype of rich people. Well, I, I don't know about that. I think he's real, actually. But um, th- there's, um, yeah, watch out, he's getting into politics. Uh, the point is, we, we, can, we can always make it about that other person that we don't know, that we don't understand, something out there, and we don't bring it home. You and I can say, well, we're rich compared to the rest of the world. Yes, but it's not about the riches. It's about the favor. It's not about the wealth. And by the way, if you leave here today and all you leave here with is, I feel guilty that I got a paycheck. No, that's not the message of this parable either. I feel guilty that I have two cars and I have more room. No, don't. Guilt, your guilt does no one any good. <laughs> Unless it causes you to make a change. Because you need to. Not just because you need an emotional experience. The Pharisees would have looked at the rich man and they would have said, now, there's a fellow right there who prospers because he's doing what God said. Because God said that if you obey him and follow his word, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed in your work. You'll be blessed in your family. You know, God... Make sure that we're blessed. God always provides for his people, so he must be doing something right. Lazarus, on the other side, must be doing something not right because he's suffering and he has somehow invited that suffering into this world. And if you're thinking, do do, do people really think that way? Do you remember in John's Gospel where they encounter a man who was blind since the day he was born. And the question of Jesus' disciples, now these are not Pharisees, 
These are the people who are learning from Jesus. These are the people who are closest to Jesus. And they, at that point, have two buckets. Let me use a little illustration here. They see the man born blind. They got two buckets. Okay, Jesus, which bucket do we put that man in? Is he the one that sinned and is suffering because of this, the punishment of God? Or was it his parents, and now they have to pay for this by his blindness? Jesus says, what if there's a third bucket? What if there's a third bucket that this man, this has been done so that God's glory can be shown? That's a a category they weren't prepared for. In the world of the Pharisees, the world that Jesus brings us in this parable, that's the only way you can look at this. It's the way that not only the Pharisees would have looked at it, but their culture would have looked at it that way too because the Pharisees were the best that that culture had to offer. And yet, this is not a dig on the Mosaic Law or the Jewish people. In fact, that all gets affirmed at the end by Father Abraham. But this is the way we see the world on the surface, and when it flips over and you go to the world after life, now we see what's really going on. The veil has been taken off. The facade has been brought down. We see that it was the rich man who really wasn't righteous. Maybe because he didn't help Lazarus, maybe. Or maybe because he justified his lack of compassion. We're not really told. The point is, he's not the righteous one, even though he may appear to be in every way. And Lazarus, who appeared to be punished, suffering, maybe he's brought it on himself somehow, I mean, doesn't he even have the dignity to get away from those dogs? He's the one that's in the lap of Abraham. What you've got at play in this parable is something that still hangs around with us today. It's an ideal, though, that puts on different forms. We can look at the Pharisees' world and the world of Jesus, and we can say, well, it's a good thing that was a long time ago because 2,000 years later, Jesus has taught us better. And I'd like to think that he has. And I really do think that if we had uh, folks with sores lying outside of our, our city gates or our house, uh, we would do something about such an obvious need. But that's, again, the surface. What's at work underneath the surface is this idea of fortune and misfortune. The rich man must have been obedient and righteous because he was wealthy and prosperous. And so, God blessed him. Obedience and righteousness leads to prosperity, leads to blessings. On the flip side, Lazarus must have been disobedient and sinful because he was poor and suffering. So in some way, God was punishing him. Now, If you want to make it sound a little more familiar... I think that what we do sometimes is we provide explanations of misfortune. I don't think that many of us would be so arrogant, so snooty, that we would get, uh, that we would think ourselves above someone who's suffering. But it might be possible that we have kind of a, a patronizing attitude towards those who suffer. 
that we might have a kind of sophisticated superstition. And rather than making us arrogant and proud that God has blessed us, we might develop a kind of superstitious cautiousness that we have to be careful. We, we, we have to be cautious because we don't want to be seen associating with the wrong kind of people. We don't want to be seen as embracing the wrong kind of ideas. Or we don't want to somehow get involved in things that would cause God to, to hold that against us and offend Him. In fact, we don't even want to have a worship that offends God because we all might pay for it later. Sometimes I think we have this idea that if we get things off in worship, then we're all going to leave here with arthritis. Most of us will leave here with arthritis anyway. But when you operate in that system that God is not intimately involved in your life, that, that worship becomes this game that appeases God, then we ignore what the cross is all about. The wrath and the penalty of sin has already been appeased by the one who loves us most. By the, by the Savior who gives himself for us. You and I do not have to come together and worship and commune and, and, and get in, inspired by God's word because if we don't, then God's going to put it down on our permanent record. And because of that, then this week, uh, you know, you're going to run out of gas somewhere or something bad is going to happen. That sort of cautiousness that we live with is really just a sophisticated form of superstition. Some of you may have grown up with that kind of superstition. I know I did. My grandmother always warned us that when we were behaving like, uh, well, like, you know, like nine-year-old kids do, she would tell us to not to be mean to animals, and she'd say, don't do that. If you kill a frog, your cow will give bloody milk. I don't know where she got this stuff. I said, well, we were just like, Grandma, that's, that's ridiculous on two levels. One, because what's the connection between the frog and the cow? And number two, we don't even have milk cow, so what are you talking about? But those sort of, that, that sort of feeling of misfortune, let me show you how it probably shows up. It probably shows up more often in our sophisticated world when bad things happen and we say to ourselves or we say to our friends and to one another, what do you think God's trying to teach you through this? What do you think God's trying to teach you? And you lost your job. You get diagnosed with cancer. Uh, some tragedy happens. What do you think God's trying to teach you? Why does God have to teach by dealing out horrible consequences. If I read this parable, Jesus has told me that Moses and the prophets have done all the teaching that needs to be done. And Jesus comes in and caps it off and makes it all perfectly understandable. What more needs to be taught? Sometimes I think we assume too quickly that when something bad happens, that's the punishment of God. And when something good happens to us, why, that's instantly the blessing of God. Now, it's good to be thankful for the good things that happen to us. But to see that as God being this, this sky fairy that hands out 
good things and bad things, good marks and bad marks. That's not God. That's our idea of keeping score with one another. And it's just, and the thing is, it might be really nice to think about fortune and misfortune. I could preach sermons that say if you do a lot of sinful things, you're going to pay for it. That if you're promiscuous, you're going to get diseases. If you're engaged in substance abuse, then you're going to get, you're going to get into accidents. It's going to wreck your health. I could give you all these reasons that it's going to be bad. And all I'm doing is I'm not preaching God and I'm not preaching the gospel. I'm preaching misfortune. And all of this is very convenient. And it would be really nice to set up a world where if you're obedient, then good things happen to you. If you're disobedient, then bad things happen to you. And we could sort everybody out and we could say, well, you know, that's what happens when parents are too permissive. Then kids end up that way. We could say that's what happens when people aren't careful with sexual purity. Those kind of things happen to them. We could say that's what happens when someone bakes his mind on drugs. He ends up like that. We could say that's what happens when parents don't behave like parents or kids go crazy and wild. They they ought to spank them a little more often and, and everything would be fine. And material blessings, well, you know, that's just thank you, God. Thank you, God. It would be really convenient to have this whole philosophy operating in our world. The problem with it is it is false, dead false. Material blessings do not always mean God is for us. Give thanks for what you've got, no matter what you've got. If your arms and legs can move today, if you can breathe breath today, if you have a meal, if you have a sandwich today, give thanks to God. At the same time, even the poor who have something to be thankful for could focus on what they don't have, even the rich who have more than they need, could focus on what they don't have. And there are people who are well-blessed financially and materially, and it doesn't mean that God is for them. Because neither is it true that those who are suffering or going through illness or going through hard times, it doesn't mean that God is against them. If we are going to equate prosperity with God being on our side, then we must also equate suffering with God being against someone. And you can't always do that. Jesus is teaching us in this parable that when you go that place, when you you do that, when you conclude that, you're going too far. In that verse that started this parable, Jesus said, God sees beyond what this world considers monumental. What society sees and calls monumental, God sees through and calls monstrous. The the gospel that we preach says... That the Son of God who was righteous, who prayed, let this cup pass from me, endured a cross that he did not deserve. We could say that's the punishment of God, but it's not the punishment of God meant for Jesus. It's not the punishment due to sin for him. It is an injustice. And it's through that injustice, through that cross, that God is going to work justice. 
But the, the, why does, and you ask yourself, why does God choose to do it through a cross? Why does he choose to do it this way? Because there's a message there for anyone who has ever gone through suffering that you are not alone. That Christ knows what it's like to be rejected. Christ has experienced that. Remember the Mark Twain quote that Dylan told us. There's something about holding a cat by the tail that you can't tell people about. You've got to experience it. You can be assured that Jesus understands whatever suffering you're going through. Because he's been there as well. And he remains there with us. And at the same time, he invites us to riches that we can't even imagine in this world. That banquet. That gathering. This is just rehearsal, folks. As good as this is, as good as this can be. You know, and sometimes it's kind of it's interesting that we're always wanting to be at our best. You know, we've got we to gotta amp it up. We've got we to gotta improve it. We've got to get everybody a little more enthusiasm. We've got to get everybody here on a Sunday morning. Fine, we can do all that. Guess what? It's still going to be better in the kingdom to come. So this is all just rehearsal. We can't achieve it on our own. There's that, that moment at the end where the rich man wants Lazarus to go back and send a message to his, to his kinfolk. And Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. It's all there. All the message about the righteousness of God. Do you understand that in the New Testament and even in the teaching of Jesus We don't have any teaching that is radically different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets say, God, they speak for God, and they say, What have I desired of you? I want you to, you know, love mercy, do good, desire justice. That's the message. That's essentially the same. It's what Jesus calls for in the Sermon on the Mount. What we have is a radically different power and a radically different source of grace than what was available. But the desire of God and the imagination of God is the same. There's not a discontinuity there. In fact, here's where this puts even more emphasis on us. The rich man said, you know, if somebody came back from the dead, then maybe, maybe my brothers would listen to Moses on the prophets because he knew, he told Abraham, they're not listening to them. We have someone who has returned from the dead. That all of the words that he preached, all the words that he spoke, all of the the words that he gave to us about redemption and repentance and renewal. If you want to know what is his credibility, he was dead and now he's alive. He was dead. He was humbled and shamed on a cross. Now he's exalted at the right hand of God in heaven. And he will return. So what sermon am I going to preach that's going to cause anybody to listen if they won't listen to him? There's one moment in the Gospels where Peter, James, and John, they should have, they should have known better than anybody else. They go up on the mountaintop and they have a little devotional with Jesus And during that devotional, Jesus is communing with his heavenly Father. And they get to see the veil is taken down. The facade is ripped away. And they get to see his heavenly glory. 
And they're amazed by this. And so Peter says, you know, it's a good thing that we were here today. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to build three little temples here. We're going to build three little church buildings. And and we're going to put one up, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. So that way everybody will be sure to know that we've got law, we've got prophets, we've got the Messiah, Son of God. I mean, we can do something with this is what Peter's message is. And God has to interrupt Peter and say, "Um, this is my son. Listen to him. I want to encourage you this week. As you get too far ahead of yourself, you, you, you start thinking that you, you, you can figure this all out. You know what the church needs. You know what plans we need to do. Here's what we need to tweak this. Here's what we need to do to change this. I do this. And what I'm going to do and I ask you to do this with me is we're going to stop. We're going to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. By the same token, as you start to think that, you know, the problem with these people is they need to change this. The problem with this group is they need to change that. And I think if those people would show up at church more and if that people would just start doing this differently and they need to do this, I want you to just stop listening to yourself and listen to Jesus. And when you start condemning yourself and you start getting cautious and and the voice of the accuser of Satan is battering you with shame and you're saying, "I, I really need to do better. God's trying to teach me something. Oh, God will never receive me. I want you to stop. You know the rest? And listen to Jesus. God is saying, this is my son. Listen to him. We're going to sing a song now. If you need any encouragement whatsoever, I want you to use this moment as a chance to pray with somebody. But don't just listen to the people who are praying. Don't think that you've got to say anything special to me or to anybody else, to one of these shepherds. They'll be down here. They'll be back there in room 100. I want you to use this as a moment to listen to Jesus. May we listen to him and see the world as he sees it.